So anyway, Hadley is not an idiot, and she realized she's ha being had, so she decides that she's going to be had less. So Hadley decides um, uh, that Hemingway has become an official douche and leaves him when they return to Paris. Uh, not even a question. She's just like, I'm taking Bumby and I'm leaving. <laughs> so Hemingway... <laughs> <laughs> Why is the kid named that? Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about dead people. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, George. Say hi, George. Uh, why are you making me do this? You know I don't want to be here right now. Yeah, I know. But we hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down various members of the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that George and I will do our amateurs best to give a basic account of the major events in the life of a now-dead person and give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, but we're going to try anyway. So, George, who do we have this week? Well, it physically pains me to say the name, but since Aaron, absolute jackass, is hosting this week, I am sorry to tell you all, dear listeners, that we'll be co covering the hack, bullshit writer, and general waste of space, Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> See, I learned, just by selecting this character, I learned this week that George has a massive hatred for this man, and I'm not entirely sure why yet. You know, there's just, just so many reasons. You know, you, you, yeah. you don't know me, man. You don't know where I've been. Anyway... Oh, especially, like, I can't believe you're doing this to me. I mean, episode 100, like, this is the, the big <laughs> one zero zero, and you're making me suffer through this bullshit? And for what? For clicks? For money? Frickin' sellout? You know, man, this is just how media business is done. You have to openly hate something popular... Just to be a contrarian, and the clicks just roll in. Next thing on the hate for clicks list is those who wear shoes. Well, I guess, I guess that's what we've come to. This is just how it is. We're pretty much Hollywood at this point. Well, hang on there. It's not that bad. It's not like I'm hiding a century of covered-up rapes and murders and proliferating child sex trafficking rings while demoralizing the country on purpose because I senselessly hate everything below the elite class. That was oddly specific. You know, one of these days, Aaron, one of these days, I'm going to blow this case wide open. I'm going to reveal to the world how bad it really is behind the scenes on the podcast. Pickles and I have been building the case. We have photos, documents, mountains of evidence, DNA samples. Alex Jones is airdropping in from a supersonic jet as we speak. Well, uh, well, shit. Do we at least have enough time to cover Ernest Hemingway before I commit suicide in a suicide-proof cell? I'm not at liberty to answer that. All right, then. Let's hurry up and d get down there into that history lab before those Clintons show up. In a world where life doesn't make sense and alcohol is your only friend, one man stood up and said... Or be another one. Ernest Hemingway, literally the greatest writer to have ever lived on planet Earth, and if you don't think that, he's the absolute best, you're apparently just a dumbass. Yeah, I, I don't have my pop filter, so I just literally taped a coffee filter to my mic. Amazing. I know. We're recording like the pioneers did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
So, George, tell me, if you had to pick one writer you'd detest more than Ernest Hemingway, who would that be, and which of their books would you burn first? That's a tough one. You know you know, I do like book burning. Um, hmm. <laughs> Ever since we did Ceausescu and they burned all that shit to Just, when the government was coming down. Leave, leave that to the side for now. I don't know. I think it might have to be... Like, maybe Joel Osteen, and I don't even know the names of any of his books, but I assume they're all the same, and they're all insipid garbage. So, just take your pick, any of those. He's probably got a translation of the Bible that would be worth burning. God, seriously, his fucking prosperity gospel is just such fucking bullshit. I don't know, man. I got one of his books, and let me tell you something. I became a millionaire overnight through the power of Christ. You literally just told me how you're using a coffee filter as a pop filter for the microphone. So I don't know how these two things tally up. I may be a rich man, but I'm also frugal and sensible with my money. I see. <laughs> so what about you? What uh, what's what's going what's uh, going in the furnace? Uh I, I actually wrote the question, but I didn't even think about it at all. Um I think I'd burn everything that Winston Churchill ever wrote. I'm starting to really, really hate that guy and it, I don't care if he had some things right. I just, just no, whatever. And I, I think, what was the one he did? I did read one of his books and it was like a history of Europe or something like that. And it was just, it, it wasn't that good, <laughs> but also on principle because it's Churchill. It must go. I mean, yeah, fuck him. Never trust yeah. a man who looks like a baby. And speaking of audio quality, I just want to let everyone know I'm recording in a different place today, and it's slightly compromised. I have some fellow human beings in the house, and that's okay. Every now and then you might hear someone yell something, or you might hear red-letter media playing in the background. But hey, this is life, and this is this is how we survive. So uh, with no further ado, computer, please bring up Ernest Hemingway. So let's get this. Let's get the ball rolling, Aaron. What was Ernest Hemingway, that fuck-faced sod waffle, best known for? <laughs> now that's one I have never heard is sod waffle, but I'll I'll, t- I'll answer just, your it, question. It flowed off the tongue. Yeah, it really does. Sod waffle. <laughs> Ernest Hemingway was best known for writing a bunch of books that everyone's heard of, but no one has actually read by choice since 1963. <laughs> I guess there's still a sign in high schools and stuff, yep, right? Yep, tons of it in high schools. It's about... Yep. <laughs> Disgusting. Yep. Well, before we go any further, I want to tell you that in honor of the material of today's episode, I have just popped open a bottle of wine. Oh, man. And I'm going to attempt to drink the entire thing while we're recording tonight. <laughs> oh, shit. I thought... <laughs> I thought it was only fair since you were drinking when I was doing my emotional moving IRA episode. That's true. Well, do you want to keep it one way or I can go grab a beer? It doesn't matter to me. No, because you have to actually deliver the material. I'm just here to mock you. All right, great. (laughs) Hey, we're going to mock Hemingway. (laughs) Um, Okay, okay. Anyway, so back back to the program. So what did... Hold up, hold up. Before you ask that question, you got to at least share with us what kind of wine you're drinking. Um... It is called Purple Moon. Interesting. And it was on sale. (laughs) (laughs) What is it, like a cab? No, Merlot. I I usually drink Merlot. Nice, nice. All right, now you can pop the question. (laughs) 
Okay, oh, that that sounded weird. Yeah. Anyway, <clears throat> what did Ernest Hemingway look like? Well, this obviously all depends on what age he is when you look at him and in what photo you select to describe this character. Most people imagine Hemingway when he's much older and has a beard and he looks like he's been through some shit and actually mattered, but I decided to go with the more embarrassing thing uh, and I've so I selected Hemingway's 1923 passport photo, where he's much younger. The photograph pictures a man with a jaw as uh, as square as I was freshman year of college, uh, who has prominent ears, which he has been known to flap to cool himself in the heat of the day. He has eyes that are almost striking, but only about as striking as a five-year-old knocking a wiffle ball off a t-ball stand. He too appears to have passionately made out with a vacuum at some point in his life, as Ceausescu this, did. This is a plague. <laughs> this is a plague. We need to deal with this old vacuum issue. I know, right? And lastly, his overall vibe is as dull and dim as a burnout fluorescent tube light, at least in this picture. That's a that's a technical term Aaron's using. Vibe. Yeah, vibe. <laughs> we're, let me tell you what we're about to check his vibes. <laughs> vibe check. All right. So. I think it's about time we jumped into Ernest Hemingway's life story and got the uh, roast machine rolling. Oh, that reminds me. I have I have chicken in the oven right now, and I can smell it, and it's making me really hungry. Oh, shit. Oh, man. Well, hopefully it'll be done when we're done here. <laughs> that's, that's the plan. That is the plan. I literally put it in the oven right before we started, and the idea is that I'm going to hang up forget any of this happened because hopefully i'll be drunk by then and then just go eat a bunch of chicken in my kitchen sitting on the floor and then like fall asleep in the corner <laughs> just fade into the night you must not be on adderall today <laughs> i'm living my best life <laughs> Alrighty then so let's let's get started because i've i understand that uh george has an excellent honorable mention for us today and i'd love to get there but i'd also like to get to roast and you'd love to get there while i'm still sober enough to exactly <laughs> So, so to start us out, let's begin with Ernest Hemingway's early life. And you're going to love this. Because he was born in 1899 in, wait for it, Illinois. I'll let you make a comment. Fuck! <laughs> I, I, fucking, I, just, I fucking hate that state. Like, it, it's just, there are no words. It's just bad. I mean, well, Aaron came from there. That's it's true. It's that's walking, talking proof. Like this podcast was started in Chicago. <laughs> like that's all you need God, to know. It's already shot. It's already shot three people this weekend. I know. So yeah, Illinois needs a vibe check. So anyway, he was born <laughs> in 1899 in Illinois. He was the son of a physician, and his mother was a well-known musician. They lived in a picture-perfect and conservative community right out of the Twilight Zone known as Cicero, which is now called Oak Park and no longer looks like the Twilight Zone. Ernest was named after his grandfather on his mother's side, which is a sweet way to honor him. Uh, an older Ernest Hemingway would later on go to say he hated the name because it reminded him of the lead character in Oscar Wilde's The Importance of Being Ernest, who he thought was kind of a fool. So, you know, fuck grandpa, I guess. <laughs> God, what an ungrateful little... Isn't that good? <laughs> like, right out of the gate, he's like, oh, I hate my name. Why? Well, it's not because I'm honoring my grandfather. I hate it because it's the name of a lead character in some play. What the shit? <laughs> it's gonna be a long night. I don't know. Oh, going. by the way, Ernest also hated his mother because she tried to make him learn to play the cello. I the audacity. <laughs> Jeez, deal with it, dude. My mom made me get piano lessons. You don't see me going all weird about yeah, it. Yeah, I know. But hated, that's the that's the important word there, hated. 
So, <clears throat> throughout his childhood, Ernest had a decent relationship with his dad, and this took the form of a very cool father and son things, such as old dad teaching little Ernest to hunt and fish and live off the land and all those wholesome things. This was something that would stick with Ernest as he grew up, and it was clear from the start that he developed a healthy love for nature, or at least a love for killing things, because he's such a horrible dude, apparently. <laughs> when Hemingway reached his high school years, he was big into sports and was involved with boxing, track, water polo, and football. And as a surprise to no one, his best subject was English, obviously, and he was quickly picked up by the school paper, The Trapeze, where he would publish his first article, which was just some boring shit about the Chicago Orchestra. So, Classic. I know, golden start here. But guess what was going on while Hemingway was in school? Why, World War I, of course. It's 1918, and at 19... Whoa, I'm drinking sparkling water again. I'm such an idiot. At 19 years old, uh, and in the last year of the war, Hemingway has decided he wants in on the fun, so he applies to join the U.S. Army, but they turn him down because his eyesight isn't good enough. So he applies to the Navy, turned down again. So then he goes, fuck it, and applies to join the Marines. Because if you can't get into the Army or the Navy because you have bad eyes, the Marines will definitely let you in, right? America's finest. I know, he's, he's really using his thinker right now, isn't he? So he's obviously turned down by the Marines. Uh, so he finally does get his way uh, into the conflict through the Red Cross, where he signed up to be an ambulance driver. And he... Oh, great. So he can't fucking see, and he's driving an ambulance. Yeah, you know, the, the logic here. It's, uh, it's solid. <laughs> We've done the numbers. <laughs> so anyway, he was shipped to Italy, and he stopped in Paris on the way. It was the first time he ever went there, and it would not be the last... At this time, Paris was being bombed by the Germans, so this was a rude awakening for Monsieur Hemingway. Um, he saw some some pretty serious shit, honestly. Uh, and he was, like, in charge with, like, picking up body parts that had been, like, blown apart and shit like that. Pretty, pretty gruesome. But anyway, he was soon on the Italian front where he met a dude and lifelong frenemy named John Dos Passos, who was also... That sounds like a fake name. It probably was, but I didn't look into it because I don't care and he's not being covered on the show. Anyway, so John was also signed up to be an ambulance driver and he was also a novelist and at the time of the war was fairly left wing. So why does that matter? Well, we'll see in a bit. So, <clears throat> Hemingway didn't actually last too long out here on the wild front in the face of German steel. He got blasted by a mortar while he was running cigarettes and chocolate to the front lines. And despite what you may be wishing, George, the story does not end there. Hemingway, though severely wounded, continues to run those smokes and Hershey bars out to the men. He gives them the Hershey bars and the cigarettes, and he was awarded the Italian Silver Medal of Bravery but only after spending five days in a field hospital watching medics pull shrapnel out of his legs. Okay, well, that's... That's not great. It's <laughs> not, not great. Not ideal. So, from this field hospital, after he's gone through painful, painful surgeries, he was transported to a real hospital in Milan, where he would recover for about six months. And here he made friends with a man named Eric Dorman Smith... And he also pulled the classic, I fell in love with my nurse move. And oh, he, come on. Yeah, he did. He Wait, falls in love. He's an alcoholic writer who fell in love with his nurse. God, this is like a fucking movie from the 80s. It's like he wrote his life or something. 
Uh, we're, up, we're, we're, we're pouring another glass. Uh-oh. <laughs> so uh, he falls in love with this nurse. Her name is Agnes von Karnowski. And this woman was almost seven years older than him, which is fine. But they hit it off so well, they decided to get married almost immediately. Before he'd even leave. I have a premonition. I have a premonition this is not going to end well. You know, just you keep those premonitions to yourself right now, Buster. <laughs> so less than three months later, she wrote him a letter. And she wrote, she wrote, Dear Ernest, I have decided instead of marrying you and destroying my life forever, I'm going to marry an Italian who is also an officer in the army and not just some ambulance driver uh, loser. <laughs> so she's moving up, and we'll all, we'll all breathe a sigh of relief for, Agne or of relief for uh, Agnes for avoiding this ticking time bomb of a man, and you will see why here in, well, very, very, very shortly. By the way, I'm sitting right next to a vent, so if it sounds like I'm in a windstorm, I apologize. So what do you do... <clears throat> Um, what do you do when you're faced with that eternal Josiah Harlan question? What do you do when she lies to you, cheats on you, and marries an Italian behind your back? Well, go to graduate school. You would think. But <laughs> the answer for Hemingway wasn't go to graduate school, and it wasn't Josiah Harlan's go to Afghanistan and become a prince. No, the Those answer... Those are literally the only two acceptable options. It, literally the only two acceptable options. And except... And Hemingway took neither of them, so... Uh, the answer for Hemingway was a fuck ton of alcohol and a lot of moping. Um, and that's why his writing okay, is... He could, you know, I, I hate the dude, but I'm going to give him a pass this time. Mm. Just this once. I get it. You know, I get it. And it, it's actually part of why uh, his relationships would be strained later on was because he was essentially constantly shit-testing people. The old, the old trust issues. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, <clears throat> after the war, and after losing Agnes to uh, Mario, uh, Hemingway had a touch of the old PTSD, go figure, um, betrayed by his woman, blown up with a mortar. Um, you know, we can, give, we can give credit where credit's due. He's been through some hard times. And he had a really hard time getting back into civilian life. And obviously this is a common phenomenon with soldiers returning from war, especially in World War One, because World War One was a complete revolution in military operation and warfare. Um, it was absolutely insane. Nobody knew what to expect. And nobody it was what? It was rough. Like best book on it, Storm of Steel mm. by Ernst Junger. If you want just like the visceral feeling of what it was actually like to be there you can you can understand why people came back the way they did yeah but the weird thing about that is that some people were just completely unaffected like on all sides you have some people who wrote memoirs who were just like yeah bloody brilliant a grenade blew up my friend next to me and then i bayoneted a german <laughs> then we had lunch <laughs> fine time like some some people on all sides were just incredibly chill with world war one and i don't understand how that even works but apparently Hemingway wasn't one of them. Yeah. So some dudes were really resilient. Some dudes were not resilient. I would probably be that kind of guy who would have a really hard time getting over it, especially if my legs nearly got blown off. So, um, let's see here. Where, where's my spot? So, yeah, like I said, this is a common phenomenon um, for, for soldiers returning from war. The meme of the amputee Frenchman still wearing his military cap sitting in a Parisian gutter definitely applies here, minus the amputee Frenchman sitting in the Parisian gutter. Instead, we just have an American who almost lost some limbs and picked up chunks of dead people with his bare hands. So, Hemingway's mental state is not so good for him as you might imagine, and to combat this, he takes an extended trip into the northern reaches of frozen Michigan to hunt and fish with some old buddies from high school. 
And he ended up writing about this in a short story called Big Two-Hearted River, which makes me really want a two-hearted ale right now. Oh, two-hearted spells. Mm-hmm. Haven't had one of those in a while. So he wrote this short story, and it was pretty much exactly about this little healing journey that he took into Michigan. Um, and, you know, again, at this point, I'm just like, all right, I get it. Like, you can't, it's, you're having a hard time getting back to civilian life. You need to do something. So you return to, like, those good times with your dad where you were hunting and fishing, and you take some high school buddy. You know, I get it. I get it. Um, unfortunately, after this trip, Hemingway has literally nothing else to do. And like many writers we've covered on the show, Hemingway is dangerously close to hitting the useless bastard trail and clocking some miles. But fortunately for Hemingway, he is known among his friends and acquaintances as a decent enough, if not merely passable writer, so he gets a job working as a freelancer in Toronto. But it's not to last. Shortly after beginning work at the Toronto Star, Hemingway ditches the vehicle and heads to the cancerous tumor of the Midwest known as Chicago, to work, yeah, I know, to work as an associate editor of the monthly journal Cooperative Commonwealth, which, as you might have guessed, was a leftist organization that aimed to protect farmers who were suffering from the horrors of the Industrial Revolution. It was a... F- wow, I wish, left- <laughs> I wish leftists still did. Yeah, I right? It was a fundamentally anti-capitalist and progressive movement uh, that definitely had a good motive, and I read about it, it had a good spirit, at least at the outset. At this time in history, uh, farmers really were starting to see what unchained capitalists were really capable of in industrial society. And I, I wrote this little note here. We really should do a whole series on the Industrial Revolution. It was not a happy time. Well, you know, as they say, the Industrial Revolution and its consequences <laughs> have been a disaster. Back to Hemingway. So, <laughs> Ernest has a... Ru- Ernest has a roommate, and his roommate has a sister, and she's just a total banger. She's a redhead with the personality of a saint, and she's beautiful and notably acts like a grown-up while also maintaining some kind of childish innocence, which is a far cry from Hemingway's previous experience uh, with individuals of the female persuasion. And her name is Hadley Richardson, and Hemingway decides he's going to marry her. Redhead or no? That was a joke, everybody. Anyway, so the pro- I've just never seen Hadley. I've Hadley. never heard of that name before. You've never heard that name? No. Oh, I guess I haven't either. Is this now a- I think about it. No, it's just, it's weird. I don't <laughs> trust people with names I don't recognize. It's a red flag already. Yeah, like that John Da whatever. Um, so anyway, Hadley lives in St. Louis though, so that's a problem. Uh, nonetheless, they maintained a steady long-distance relationship, frequently Skyping and sending handwritten letters, spritz of oh. perfume. Yeah, while the woman in the relationship cheats on the guy repeatedly while he slaves away oh. trying to maintain morale until they can reconnect, only to be suddenly dumb. That hasn't happened to me twice. Anyway, Hemingway does indeed maintain a long-distance relationship with Hadley, and the two did get married in the September of 1921 and moved to Paris shortly thereafter. Why? Well, Hemingway has gotten rehired at the Toronto Star to work as their foreign correspondent, baby. Yeah, I know. So Hemingway takes this beautiful, smart, lovable redhead to the City of Lights to work on his new high-paying and comfortable job. And it seems he's doing really well. Paris is actually really cheap to live in at this time, and it's also a popular spot for famous writers. So he's meeting, like, really famous writers. He's just rolling in the cash, rolling with his gorgeous and delightful redhead, and just rolling the streets with all these famous people. He's in a good spot, and only some stupid motherfucker with no common decency or any sense at all, for that matter, could fuck something like this up, right? 
<laughs> Ooh. Got another well, one of those premonitions coming down. Yeah. Something's, some, the spidey sense is tingling, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, we'll see what happens. Hemingway works in Paris for about two years and writes dozens of short stories, or dozens of, uh, not short stories, but dozens of like news stories about what the hell was going on in Europe in the early 20s, including important topics such as which country had the best fishing spots for trout and what tuna did in Spain. I mean, remember, he's getting paid a ton of money to do this. It's it's like it's a little bit like the the whole BuzzFeed like bubble that burst a couple years back. It's just another reason to hate journalists. Anyway, Hemingway wrote his first real book in 1923. It was called Three Stories and Ten Poems. How many stories? <laughs> Three. How many poems? <laughs> ten. <laughs> that is the most fucking uncreative title I have heard in my life. Wait one more, just one goddamn second. He gets creative in the very next sentence. He wrote a sequel to this book that no one cared about called In Our Time, the title of which was written all in lowercase for some probably dumb fuck edgy journalist reason. (sighs) (laughs) And around this time, he really got into what? Bullfighting. Because he was in Spain, and that's all the Spanish do when they're not fulfilling Aztec prophecies. And about this time, he's getting into bullfighting and, like, obsessively into bullfighting. He has a son who, with uh, with his wife, Hadley, who he nicknamed Bumby because to hell with that kid's self um, <laughs> What the hell? Yeah, he's nicknamed Bumby. <laughs> like... I... That's not a name. Yeah. So we're getting off to a great start here. Uh, and I think it's probably a good spot to... Take a little break and do tonight's honorable mention. Oh, already? Wow. Coming up on that fast. I know. Well, I put it a little bit earlier in um, because I couldn't find a natural break. Uh, Let me mark this for honorable mention. All right. Take it away. Okay. So, we're uh, we're going going somewhere where we haven't... I don't think we've really done much for honorable mention or done much on the show at all. We're going there for honorable mentions, and that is Japan. Have you done anything really Uh-oh. in Japan? Uh, we. I've been wanting to do other the than land the Russians the sailing all the fuck away around the world and then sinking. Yeah, I've been wanting to cover a samurai for a long time. Okay, well, you are in luck because we've got we've got everything in here that I love. So okay, buckle up. So I don't know how much you know about the history of Christianity in Japan. Uh, I I read uh, Silence by uh, Shusake Endo, and I saw the movie, which was worse. But that's it, and that's a fictional story, so there you go. Okay, so yeah, basically, in the 1500s, um, there were a lot of Catholic missionaries in Japan, and they were actually very, very successful. Like, there were tens of thousands, um, at a certain point, even up to hundreds of thousands of Catholics in Japan. Um, and it was, it was a very, very large, you know, Catholic community there. And things are fine for a while, but then towards the end of the 1500s, the persecution really begins because various factions didn't trust the Catholics because Mm. they didn't really understand them. And, you know, it's sort of natural inclination that to suspect anyone who's uh, sort of doing something new and kind of weird of being a potential threat. So even though these are very non-threatening people on the whole, they're nevertheless kind of viewed as a danger by the various different factions that are all fighting each other for supremacy in Japan. So it's kind of a bunch of different groups fighting each other and persecuting the Christians on the side. 
Gotcha. Um, and this is this is like a, a really severe persecution. Um, all the missionaries are expelled, and the Japanese converts are, you know, treated terribly. Many of them are just outright murdered. A lot of them are crucified, actually. They have a spear stuck through them under their ribs and crossing you know, from one shoulder to the other, and then they're hung up oh. by that. So yeah, like, this is a really, really terrible persecution that's going on. And so this is the end of the 1500s. Um, in 1600, in a, as part of his big campaign to bring all of Japan under his control, uh, the shogun of the Tokugawa shogunate um, decided he wanted to destroy the remnants of Christianity in the country because he thought doing that would help him unify the country. So he goes about doing that. And there's a region in Japan called Shimbara, or sorry, Shimabara, um, which had been the ancestral land of a noble family called the Arima family, which had actually been Catholics for several generations at this point. Well, because they were Catholics, they were forced out in 1614, and their lands were given to a good Buddhist family, the uh, Matsukuru family. And the Matsukuro family really wanted to suck up to the shogun, so they were, like, building fortresses and, you know, training armies and stuff just to show how loyal they were to the shogun. But all that cost a lot of dinero, so they're just taxing mercilessly the people. And guess what? These, these people are the already persecuted Christians because since this noble family that they took the land from had been Christian for generations, most of the people were Christian. And so they're simultaneously persecuting Catholics while also exorbitantly taxing them. And okay. this is not a good situation. Um, eventually that uh, Lord dies, but his son just continues doing the same thing. And it just gets worse and worse, and they sort of start intentionally inflicting famines, you know, kind of Stalin-style on the Catholic population. Finally, in 1637, there's an open revolt among the Catholic population, which has been, you know, 40 years of persecution and starvation and oppression. And a lot of ronin, who are masterless samurai, samurai who aren't pledged to a lord, um were actually Catholics at this point because that's a big reason why you might end up as a masterless samurai is if you happen to be a Catholic and then you didn't fit into the Buddhist scheme of things. And so you had a lot of these masterless samurai who happened to be Catholics. And so they actually sort of flocked to the area to join in this uprising. And you ended up with about 37,000 Catholics, um, which included men, women, children, elderly, you know, a lot of non-combatants and everything. But 37,000 Catholics all taking shelter in Hara Castle, which is the fortress of Shimabara, this area. And the leader of this rev of this uh, revolution was named Masuru Tokisada, who was a 16-year-old boy who was trained Holy as a shit. samurai, and he was the son of a, of a samurai as well. So he came from, you know, a samurai clan, and he was chosen by the, uh, the leader, by the various leaders as the uh, head of this rebellion. And the Tokugawa shogun had sent an army of over 125,000 soldiers to suppress the rebellion at Hara Castle. And um, when they get there, you know, this is a castle. In fact, this was a pretty newly built castle. I think it was built with all the taxes that were being extorted. So the shogun's forces realize, hmm, we need to find a way to deal with this whole castle thing. So they approach Nicholas Kukabaker, 
a local Protestant who was the manager of the Dutch trading post on the coast and asked him to provide gunpowder and cannons so that they could besiege the Catholics. And of course, the Dutch were more than happy to provide that since they're, you know, Protestants. Uh, so they provide right. all the all the armaments. And despite a, um, a bombardment lasting 15 days, they were unable to uh, breach the castle. And so they started just launching assault after assault. And it was a whole year of attacks on this castle, which were, which were, was defended successfully by the Catholic defenders and the force of the Shogun were suffering very heavy casualties in these attacks by, uh, by April of 1638, there were, there were about 27,000 rebels in the castle of whom about 12 to 14,000 were, you could call them soldiers, but you know, that's basically people of military age who were able to fight. Sure. And then about 13,000 non-combatants. Um, so women, children, old people, and whatnot. And they're facing off, yeah, against you know an army of basically 130,000 soldiers because they keep getting reinforced. And they're, Good you God. know, they defend for over a year. And despite their many, you know, very decisive victories against the attacking forces, they're running out of food, weapons, and ammunition in the castle. And so they mount an assault to try to break out on April 4th, but they do not succeed and are forced back into the castle. Uh, the next week, the um, outer walls of the castle finally fell to the forces of the Shogunate, um, and then the citadel in the center actually held out for three more days of assault um, by 125,000 men before finally falling on April 15th. All 27,000 rebels, men, women, and children, were crucified on the hill next to Tar Hara Castle, including 16-year-old Masuda Tokasada. His severed head was actually brought to the nearby, nearby nearest large city, Nagasaki, where it was put on public display. Hara Castle was razed and burned to the ground, and you know all evidence of it was you know just wiped out. They just completely leveled it. Yeah, the bodies of all the people killed were just tossed into the uh, into the debris of the castle and were not properly buried. After the battle, um, all mentions of Masuda Tokasada and the Shimabara Rebellion were pretty much ignored from the from Japanese history for hundreds of years. Or, and this is even worse, they were fictionalized into being bad guys. So there are actually dozens of everything from, like, 50s graphic novels all the way up to modern anime where Masuda Tokusada is, like, this demon zombie lord who's the bad guy. When this was a 16-year-old kid who led a rebellion against an incredibly oppressive government that was literally murdering people for being Catholic. Holy shit. What a... S Damn. Um... Is that where it ends? Yeah. There is, however, Damn. now... I couldn't find when it was put up, but there is now a statue of him at the site of the siege. Great. But yeah, so a 15-year-old who, yeah, led a successful defense of this castle for a year against overwhelming odds. That's insane. Uh, <laughs> wow. When I was 16, I... <laughs> yeah, what the fuck were you doing, Aaron? I was playing Fallout 3. <laughs> Man, that's incredible. Yeah, You're so right. like you can actually look at, you can find fucking anime stuff where he's the bad guy. And that just pisses me off. Like, I have nothing against anime, I'm not into it. But seriously, when I found out that he's the fucking bad guy in a lot of Japanese um, anime and manga stuff, I'm like, fuck that! <laughs> fuck 
that. Yeah. Man. So anyway, you know, I just want to say for the host of the podcast, Masuda Tokasada, like, you're the fucking man. <laughs> like, we salute you. What was that? You cut out. I said, um, we salute Mas- Masuda Tokasada. Like, he's the fucking man. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty cool. That's pretty freaking cool. Um, though, and they're not though. That isn't, a, I'm not disagreeing. I was going to say, uh, there, there is a really good, uh, book, uh, and I, j- I mentioned it a little bit earlier, Silence, um, about Christian persecution in Japan, uh, in that time. It's, it's a fictionalized account, and, you know, it, it, it's, uh, I would say at the very least it's a little bit controversial, but it does a good job of painting like a good sort of picture of what it looked like to be a missionary at that time in Japan, which it was not fun. Let's just put it that way. Well, thanks for that, George. That closes our honorable mention for this week. And now we're back to from going going from a very significant 16-year-old boy to a very dysfunctional uh, former ambulance driver turned writer. <laughs> So when we left Hemingway, he was naming his child Bumby because he fucking hated him. <laughs> I still like I don't. Even, is it supposed to mean something or? I have I have no idea. There's probably some Hemingway specialist out there who's just like, just someone like, probably wrote a dissertation about it. What did you, What did you just send me? What? Oh hey, is that him? Yeah, that's him. Hella, he looks like he barely fits in his armor. Um. Anyway, so. Throughout the 20s, the 1920s, Hemingway worked on all kinds of books and articles that nobody ever cared about, ever. He also met F. Scott Fitzgerald, who had just released The Great Gatsby and was seeing massive success because it was an instant classic. Hemingway read the book and decided, uh, basically just decided, that his next work would have to be a novel uh, just because he wanted to outdo The Great Gatsby. So, peer pressure. Uh, you're still sending me shit What he's... Oh, hey, another ig- ig- Ignore that. I'm just sending you crap. Keep okay. talking. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so he wants to outdo Great Gatsby, and in the meantime, he's spending a lot of time in Spain, um, to, uh, just watching bullfights, and he brings a lot of his American and British friends with him, because he's like, guys, really, they kill the bull, it's like the coolest shit ever, like, they stick it a million times with a sword, eventually it, like, falls over and dies, and I find that really fascinating for some odd reason, and, you know, anyway, so he's, like, spending all this time with bullfighters, and... Shortly after uh, this little trip, he begins work on his novel, which was a book about a lot of American and British friends uh, going to Spain to watch some bullfighting. Stunning. That sounds familiar. Yeah. So this book, it's, it's like just like writing fictionalized versions of whatever the hell he's doing that day. So this book was known as The Sun Also Rises, and he wrote it in the space of two months. Speculation persists about where the inspiration for this novel began, but most historians seem to agree that Epstein didn't kill himself. After the release of this book, Hemingway promptly cheats on his wife with her friend. Oh, come on. With her friend. Her friend. What? Uh, For fuck's while they're sake. All, I know. While they're all on a trip together watching fucking bullfights. For, I know. This fucking guy. Like, yeah. <laughs> fuck Hemingway. I just want to keep talking about my awesome Japanese teenage hero. I know. I know, and I did this to you for episode 100. <laughs> I'm just going to keep drinking. All right, carry on. Yep, carry on. So uh, this woman that he cheated on his wife with, his uh, redhead beauty, Hadley, 
was named Pauline Pfeiffer. You can go look at pictures of her. I can't even figure out why the hell you would give up your beautiful redhead to have that, but I don't know. He's a psychopath. Um, you're highlighting something. Do you want to say something? No, I'm Googling it. You're Googling it? <laughs> He's you Googling told, Pauline you, Pfeiffer. You said you could look up, so I'm looking at Oh, yeah, no. No, why would you okay. ever cheat? I, I don't. I don't get it. Um, so anyway, Hadley is not an idiot, and she realizes she's ha- being had, so she decides that she's going to be had less. So Hadley decides um, uh, that Hemingway has become an official douche and leaves him when they return to Paris. Uh, not even a question. She's just like, I'm taking Bumby and I'm leaving. <laughs> so Hemingway... <laughs> why, why is the kid named that? I don't know. But anyway, so... Uh, Hemingway, while in the divorce talks, offers Hadley all the proceeds from his book sales uh, from The Sun Also Rises as a sort of like a, I'm sorry, I did a terrible thing. And she accepts it and goes her own way, leaving this ass clown behind with his new woman, Pauline, who he marries shortly thereafter in 1927. Worthy of note, since we were talking about Catholics earlier, I just wanted you to know that he converted to Catholicism just to marry Pauline. Well, we don't fucking want him. <laughs> so they honeymoon in, uh, in Le Grau de Ra. I don't know how to pronounce French. Um, where Hemingway gets anthrax. That is not a joke. Straight up caught, got anthrax uh, on his honeymoon. And that's a, that's a bill. That's Instacarma right there, by the way. So anyway, he starts work on another series of short stories and impregnates his new wife around this same time. This dumb fuck gives himself a permanent scar on his forehead by pulling a skylight down onto his head because he mistook it for the pole chain on his own toilet. <laughs> How drunk, you ask? <laughs> Who knows? Well, well, okay, I... I think I, I have to give him a pass on this one. Like, we've all done things. Yeah. Like, we've it, all done things. Some of us some of us still walk with a limp. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> oh, man, there's a story there. Do you want to share that story, or should we move on? We should move on for now. Another okay. time. <laughs> Perhaps another time we'll talk about the, uh, the leap. <laughs> so, the leap of faith. The total faith. <laughs> So, Pauline soon asks if they can move back to America in order to have familial support. Um, Because, I mean, you probably lose your trust in a man after he seriously injures himself by pulling a light off the wall while attempting to flush the toilet. (laughs) So the couple moves to... Yep. (laughs) Plus, she's, like, gonna have a kid now, so she's gotta be conscious of that. like, he used to be married to her friend, and then he cheated on her friend with her. Right. Like, he's, he's, yeah, he's not exactly a, you know, a mighty fortress. Yeah. So the couple moves to Key West, Florida, um, and in America, their son Patrick is born. And it was a very, very difficult delivery. And of course, the whole time, Hemingway was just taking notes on the whole thing so he could include it in his semi-autobiographical account of this uh, terrifying event in his book, A Farewell to Arms. No, oh, that reminds me of a great story. Uh, mm. You remember Chivalry, right? Yeah, the game. Yeah, I remember I was playing Chivalry, and some fucker cut both my arms off, and then before I died, he was able to put in the chat a farewell to arms. (laughs) (laughs) 
That's insanely funny. Wow. <laughs> uh, that game was lit, but I still haven't gotten on the whole Mordhau train, but I will eventually. Join us, brother. So anyway, the family travels around the United States for a while. Um, Hemingway visits Bumby in New York, where he was. <laughs> I know every time it's going to be funny. Um, but while he's visiting little Bumby, he receives a telegram informing him that his father has just taken the coward's way out and offed himself because of money troubles. And the really tragic part of it is that literally minutes after this man went up to that great overrated novel in the sky, a letter arrived from his son, Ernest Hemingway, saying that Ernest was going to take care of all his financial problems because he was now a rich man. The letter oh, literally came minutes after this guy killed himself, which is horrible. That's and on this... What? Awful. I know. Um, so it's like Ernest Hemingway may be a douche, but he's been through a lot of shit. Um, and, but that's, that's not a justification. I'm just ex- trying to explain some of it. On this topic, Ernest is quoted as saying, I'll probably go the same way. Which, wow, yeah. this got really dark. I know. Um, then, uh, that December of 1928, he did begin work on A Farewell to Arms, publishing it the following September. Of course, we all know about this one, but all I know about it is the title, and I refuse to look into it any further. I was forced to read it in high school, forgot everything, was bored the whole time. It doesn't matter. There's probably people out there who are like, Ernest Hemingway's a genius! And, hey, you can think that, but I don't know if I agree. So, anyway, Hemingway's next amazing book, uh, was about what? Take a guess. Trout. Bullfighting. Okay. (laughs) Close. I mean, it's still an animal, so... Anyway, so he tried to mask his sick interest in this anti-bull blood sport with So Deep Bro by saying bullfighting was actually of great tragic interest being literally of life and death. That was his justification. It was, oh, it's great tragic interest. You know, I'm not just in, in this because I'm... That's what you know, I'm going to say it is next time I'm driving 125 on the interstate. This is of <laughs> great tragic interest. <laughs> being literally of life, <laughs> of and, life death. and death. So in the 30s, Hemingway was basically... He just kind of lived the life. He traveled and hunted all over America. At one point, he got in a car wreck where he broke his arm so bad the doctor who fixed him up literally used a kangaroo tendon to set the bone. I have no idea why. I'm confused by the way you've worded this because it seems to indicate that there's a degree of fucked upness that once you reach (laughs) that, it requires a kangaroo tendon. Like, yeah, yeah, he was hurt so bad they needed to use a kangaroo tendon. Like, normal medicine wouldn't work anymore. My God, Nancy, this is the worst I've ever seen. Get the kangaroo. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm guessing this was in Australia? No, it was in America. And here's the the thing I didn't look at. Where'd they fucking get a kangaroo? (laughs) I don't know. Um, I didn't even look it up if this was, like, just a name for a piece of medical equipment. You should probably check in that. Kangaroo tendon... There, there are questions that need answers, my friend. Medical term. Let's see here. Holy shit. It's a legit kangaroo tendon. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I don't know. Um, and it's they're researching it now as a... I don't care. All right, I'm getting out of here. All right. <clears throat> so in 1931, Hemingway had another son with Pauline, and Pauline's uncle was pleased by this, so he bought the family... A uh, a new home in Key West, and I've actually been there, so there's that. 
So during the early 30s, Hemingway was just kind of doing what rich people did back then. He's constantly going on sporting trips in darkest Africa, traveling around the world for some fucking reason, and going on male-only hunts and expeditions to places like Africa, where he contracts dysentery and got so sick that he had to be flown out of the country. And believe me, it was indeed bad enough to warrant evacuation, because he had indeed evacuated certain parts of his digestive tract due to this illness. Ugh. Yes, that means exactly what you think it means, and no, I'm not making that up. It was freaking awful. So of course he writes about it, <laughs> um, but ultimately nothing comes of it. He just, you know, whatever. So in 1934, Hemingway, being a completely unoriginal rich person, bought some fucking boat and started sailing around the Caribbean. This pattern of rich person behavior continued until, uh, it well, well into 1937, at which point Hemingway was recorded to report, or recruited to report on the Spanish Civil War, which was very much happening in 1937. He teams up with a... Oh, oh the there it goes. There it goes. Our guest star. Our weekly tradition. So... <laughs> Reporting on the Spanish Civil War, he teams up with a Dutch filmmaker and propagandist named Joris, Joris Ivans, whatever, in support of the leftist Republican side of this conflict, and together they reported on the in war fairness, and made movies. Fuck them. Like, you ever heard a thing called the fucking Red Terror? No. Yeah, so now, no. like, thousands of priests and monks and nuns were mercilessly butchered by the Republicans during the Spanish Civil War. So fuck anyone who went there to virtue signal about, oh, look, I'm fighting for freedom and democracy. Fuck you. Yeah. No, also, I, I, I'm, on, I'm on glass number five now. Are you out? Have you gotten through the whole bottle? Uh, there's a little bit left in the bottom. Man. Well, I better ratchet this up because you're going to need to go to sleep soon. <laughs> <laughs> I don't sleep. <laughs> So, it is funny, though, that the leftists were called the Republicans and the IRA, which we just finished covering, was also called Republican. It's very interesting how those words get just shifted depending on the, depending on, like, who's running things. So, anyway. because yes, the, the word, the word Republic actually means essentially nothing. It comes from Latin race, which means a thing, a, a piece of business, an affair, and publica, public. So, literally, the public thing. Is what a republic is. <laughs> so any government that in some way can claim to be representative of the public thing is a republic. Gotcha. Well, that makes sense of that. So together with this propagandist, uh, Hemingway made all sorts of movies and bullshit like that. Um, just like about how, you know, the struggle. And notably, they were um, these two were among the last foreign correspondents to leave Spain as the war was wrapping up. Also worth noting, uh, Hemingway was fucking another woman who was not his wife while he was there. Come so on! Yeah. So, from Spain, Hemingway traveled home to Key West, where he climbed in his stupid fucking boat and sailed for Cuba. Landing on the shores of the island nation, Hemingway started living out of a hotel and was soon joined by his new mistress, who he'd met in Spain, Martha Gellhorn. Hemingway's last wife found out about this and left him, learning the same lesson that Hadley had learned the hard way years before. So, yeah, he's just he's just racking them up. And as soon as the divorce papers were signed uh, with this woman, who was a mother to two of his children, Hemingway married Martha in Wyoming and moved to Idaho. He also moved his winter quarters to Cuba and populated the space with dozens of cats. Okay, this is the first good thing. I like cats. <laughs> I find that immensely surprising. I, I don't know. 
um, why? so wait, wait, why? I don't know. Just it, you don't seem like a cat person, but every time I see you with a cat, you're like you just morph into something completely new. <laughs> cats are um, fucking G, man. Yeah, cats are pretty cool. What was the What was the name of your one cat? The uh, Remigius. Yeah, Remigius. Yeah, that's a great name for a cat. Anyway, so, inspired by his uncontrollable dickmanship, Hemingway writes his famous novel... <laughs> Sorry, that took me a second. <laughs> Hemingway wrote his favorite novel, or famous novel, I should say, For Whom the Bell Tolls, which earned him a Pulitzer Prize and a ton of money. From here, he goes to China, where he is recruited by the Soviets to work with Soviet intelligence. Um... Want to elaborate on that a little bit? Not really. Um, this was uh, during World War II, so the Soviets were technically American allies, so it wasn't suspect yet. Uh, as suspect, yes. yeah. So back in Cuba, he convinced the cu the Cuban government to help him outfit his stupid fucking boat with guns, so that he could hunt German U-boats in Cuba. Just he wants to sail around the waters of Cuba and blow up U-boats. And the government's like, sure, why not? So they pay for him to outfit God, his... I wish someone would have torpedoed this son of a bitch. Yeah, you... you, you we're not even to woman number six yet, okay? <laughs> that might be an exaggeration. Anyway, so in 1944, uh, Hemingway yes, the was... the early in, years. The early years. In 1944, Hemingway was in Europe, presumably writing about whatever the hell was going on there in 1944. Probably nothing. Uh, because it's, you know, Europe in 1944. Nothing, nothing comes going. to mind. Yeah, nothing comes to mind. So in London, he meets a writer for Time magazine named Mary Welsh and promptly does her too. Meanwhile, Martha, his third wife, is traveling across the Atlantic in an enemy-targeted ship filled with explosives and ammunition because the millionaire refused to buy her a plane ticket. What? What, <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah. She, she wanted to see I... him. And the only way to get there was to go on a targeted ship filled with explosives and ammunition. I don't even... I guess by that point he's checked out checked out of that hotel, so to speak. Yeah, for he's real, like, though. if she dies, she dies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so anyway. Wow, what a piece of fuck. Yeah, really, for real. Um, anyway, so she makes the journey, survives, doesn't get blown up by Germans, and she finds him in London in a hospital. Uh, why is he in the hospital? Well, he got himself in another fucking car accident and had a severe concussion. Martha's ship uh, finally comes home, uh, comes in after an arduous journey across the Atlantic, but she only sticks around long enough to basically spit on him before going right back to America. Like, she traveled the ocean just to say, fuck you, Ernest. And then she left. <laughs> For real, Respect. that's like, that's, yeah, I know, that's like a real pro gamer move there. So when Ernest recovered from his injury, he asked this new woman, Mary Welsh, to marry him on their third date. After this, Hemingway, I know there was, there was, you had nothing to say because there's, <laughs> it's like expected at this point. I mean, yeah, what, what else is there to say? Yeah. After this, Hemingway was involved in the Normandy landings and was set to cover Operation Overlord by literally <sighs> participating in the invasion. Um, but he got labeled precious cargo and was disallowed from actually landing at Normandy. His boat got within sight of the German positions on the beach and then turned the fuck around and went back to the big boat. So he didn't see shit. And later that year, he started LARPing as a soldier and led a dinky militia just outside of Paris that did literally nothing. This was, of course, against the rules because he was a non-combatant war correspondent, not a soldier. 
but of course, he's rich enough uh, to not have to play by the rules. So when someone calls him out and it looks like he's going to get in trouble. Don't worry. Journalists still don't play by the rules. Exactly. Nothing happens. Uh, the rich, the journalists, those guys, they all play by different rules. So throughout the war, he did what journalists do. And that's all I have to say about that. Post-war, he married his new girl, Mary, and just did more Hemingway so this- kind. Wow. So just refresh refresh my memory. So what is this his fourth wife? Fourth, yeah. And so this is just of wives he's actually been married to. Yeah, this fourth wife, fourth wife, fifth like serious relationship. Because remember Agnes, they were okay. in love or whatever. Oh, I, I forgot about Agnes already. Yep, yep. They just blow right through him, you know. He really blew it with Hadley. What an asshole. Anyway, post-war, he married this new girl, Mary. And did more Hemingway kinds of things. Meanwhile, the good Lord above is about to start delivering some bills to Mr. Hemingway. Ernest got into another car accident that gave him another wound on his forehead. So he's got the mark of Cain like three times over at this point. Um, Mary broke her right angle, or angle, her right angle, her right ankle while skiing. Healed up, went skiing again, and broke her left ankle. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> Can't catch a break. Get it? <laughs> Can catch a break. So Hemingway then got into another car accident that injured his son, Patrick. And to cope with all this bill paying, Hemingway does what Hemingway always does when times get hard. He boozes it up and cheats on his wife with a 19-year-old girl in Venice. So what, what's the time frame now? How far after the war are we? Uh, six years. Okay. Or less. No, less than six years. It's like three years after the war. Okay. Yeah. And around this time, after uh, cheating on his wife, he wrote The Old Man in the Sea, which won him another Pulitzer in 1952. And Hemingway then... Oh, my mic just popped. Just got to do a little little test. Okay, we're doing good. All right. So. And fun Hemingway, fact, The Old Man in the Sea may have won him a Pulitzer Prize, but it won me a game of Trivial Pursuit in 2004. What? It was the winning question, uh... In Trivial Pursuit, 2004. Tough game. Oh. Yeah, wow. Well, It was the opening line of a book, and it was, which. what book is this the opening line of? And I completely fucking guessed The Old Man in the Sea, but it turned out to be right, and I won. Wow. Well, congratulations on your 15-year-old victory. <laughs> so, Hemingway decides to go back to Africa for some more sightseeing, and while in an airplane over the Belgian Congo, God decided to deliver another bill. Hemingway's airplane literally hit a telephone pole and crash-landed in the brush, injuring Hemingway's head again and breaking two of Mary's ribs. So God's just slapping him over the head again and again. You know what I'm going to ask? A telephone pole? They were flying at 15 feet elevation? Yep. (laughs) It was uh, was good. That's one way to really see the sights. Yeah. So in order to treat their wounds, which were pretty serious, they had to fly to Entebbe, which meant getting onto another plane, uh, which was a plane that happened to just explode on the runway with Hemingway and his wife inside. Um, Hemingway got some bad burns and another concussion, one so bad he had a cerebral leak. And when they finally got to Entebbe, they discovered that reporters had already been running a story saying that he was dead because journalists don't check their facts. They they're awful so he gets there journalists would lie (laughs) not at all (laughs) so 
he gets there and they're like, oh my god, his body's on this plane. He like walks out and they're like, oh my god, he's still alive. And so he sets the record straight and he's like, guys, I'm really not dead. And, you know, he's like, I really also need to get to the hospital. My brain is leaking. <laughs> so he, after all this, they, uh, they decide we need some time away. Like this is, we need some time away from time away. Like we need to like take, you know, <laughs> um... Wait, where is Entebbe that they've had to go to? I know I've heard of it, where but is, I can't remember where in Africa it is. It's it's off of Lake Victoria. Is it Lake Victoria? So Victoria Falls, sorry. What Near, yes, what country is that in? Uh, I don't know. Let me Google it. Uh, Central Uganda. Okay, so Uganda, cool. Okay. I just wanted to make sure I knew where we were talking about. Right. So they decide to go camping to take some time away from time away. And he brings his wife and little Patrick. Of course, he was reportedly bitching the whole time because he was still suffering from the burns he had gotten on the exploding plane. And amidst all this bitching about burns, God causes a brush fire to break out, which proceeds to burn him even more. <laughs> I don't even know whether I... I don't know whether to feel sorry for this guy or not anymore. Like, he just keeps fucking up at about the same rate that he keeps getting fucked up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, all told, Africa claims the high score on Waka Hemingway. Um, he left the continent with two cracked discs, a ruptured kidney, a ruptured liver, a dislocated shoulder, severe burns, a concussion that was causing his brain to leak, and a broken skull. Sounds like a normal Tuesday night, if you know what I mean. I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> in 1954, Hemingway won the Nobel Prize, but of course it didn't matter. He was literally bedridden for a year due to his injuries. All he did was sleep, drink, and write. And he discovered... Ah, yes, um, my memoirs of college. Exactly. So he re also rediscovered some lost writings of his that were being stored in Paris that he hadn't seen for like 30 years. So he sends a, an agent to reclaim all of this stuff um, and wrote a memoir using notes gathered from these writings. And while all this was going on, he was constantly being harassed by people who loved his work and knew where he lived. So he was basically always fighting off loads of his fans so he could work. And this got so bad that Hemingway threatened to leave Cuba altogether. And then Fidel Castro overthrew Batista. Hemingway reportedly said he was delighted that Castro had been victorious. Until Castro came up with the idea of nationalizing property owned by Americans, at which point it got very real for this LARPing dumbass, who quickly moved to the safety of a flyover state like the spiritual Californian he is. So he goes to Idaho to run away from Castro, who's taking all of his stuff now. So, in but the remember, <sighs> real communism has never been tried. We haven't covered Castro yet, but it's coming. In the 1950s, Hemingway just spent all of his time working on his memoir, which was entitled, the ridiculous title, A Movable Feast. Um, and Okay, so that, that's interesting, because do you know what that... I know I, That term I immediately recognize. Do you, what? Do you know what that is? No. Okay, so it's... um, There are certain... Feast, as in feast day, like a holy day, you know, Christmas, Easter, the big ones. Mm -hmm. But on the liturgical calendar, where there are, like, saints' feasts and everything, there are some that are called movable feasts, which means that they're celebrated on the nearest Sunday. So, you know, something like Christmas, if it falls on a Tuesday, you celebrate it on a Tuesday. But some lesser things are celebrated on the nearest Sunday rather than on the day they fall, if they're in the middle of the week. And that's a movable feast. I don't know why the fuck he's named his book that, but that's a movable <laughs> feast. It means it can get transferred to the nearest Sunday. 
Well, thank you, uh, resident Catholic, for schooling us on what. <laughs> I still don't know what the fuck that has to do with Hemingway, but it's, you know, I'm it rolling sounds with it. like. I mean, if I had to guess, it's a memoir about him. He's just traveling and always partying. I don't know. Um. So anyway, he was. Uh, he also at the same time he was writing a movable feast. He was writing about bullfighting in Spain because he can't get enough. And he was writing this article for Time magazine. And he was required to write 10,000 words about it. But Hemingway got so jazzed up about killing bulls that he actually wrote about 130,000 words. Which was edited down to 40,000 words and then later released in full as a book about bullfighting. So... Hemingway briefly attempted life in the Big Apple, but this didn't work out so well for him. He went to Spain again to have his picture taken so he could be on the cover of Life. Ironic uh, that he was on the cover of Life magazine because he fell seriously ill and was anticipating a complete mental breakdown. uh, And, in fact, verged on completely losing it multiple times. Back in New York, Hemingway holed himself up in Mary's apartment and refused to leave. Why? Well, he feared he was now being followed by those Soviet agents he agreed to work with all those years ago. And Mary looks at this crazy man and says, You're going to the doctor, bud. So, they have a trusted physician out in Idaho, so they, they take a train. And Mary's really hoping that this guy can uh, help Hemingway through these trying times. And on their way there, Ernest was had his eyes wide open the whole time. He was just looking for FBI agents. And this was not actually paranoia. The FBI had indeed been watching Hemingway. Uh, why? Uh, you know, the whole rigging up his stupid boat with guns to hunt German subs while also pledging allegiance to the Soviet agents. That might be why he's on the FBI's watch list. I mean, in fairness, I look for FBI agents when I walk to work every morning. Well, yeah, but you're you, so... <laughs> Excuse me. Anyway... So Hemingway's trusted doctor sends him to the Mayo Clinic in the hopes that somebody would be able to do something. He checks in under a false name and is immediately exposed to all kinds of weird psychiatric treatment, including the classic electro, uh, electric shock therapy, which he's exposed to about 15 to 16 times. Oh, zapped. Uh, and this is after having multiple concussions, car accidents, you know, all these injuries throughout his life, you know, dealing with dysentery, anthrax, you know, like, he's not had it easy physically. And now, like, it, it appears that the final organ he has left to give up is his mind. So he left the Mayo Clinic in complete shambles. Nothing worked, nothing helped, the medication wasn't working, he was just spiraling completely out of control. And after he returned to Idaho, Mary woke up one morning to find Hemingway in the kitchen with a shotgun. Um, She called the doctor again, who came by and sedated him. And he was promptly sent back to the Mayo Clinic and zapped again. After returning home, he lasted three days before taking his favorite double-barreled shotgun and finally going up to that great dumb book you had to read in high school in the sky. So he commits suicide. Um... Which is, of course, a tragedy. Um, And it's also pretty tragic that Hemingway's father, sister, and brother all killed themselves in similar fashions. And it turns out that they all had the same disease known as hemochromatosis, which is a disease, it's a genetic disease that prevents your body from properly metabolizing iron. And this results in constant physical and mental degradation throughout one's life and often ends with something like suicide. It also causes erratic behavior, sudden life changes, all that kind of shit. So... Not saying that that's the past, but it 
clearly affected his entire family very deeply because they all took, you know, the uh, not fun way out. So, Ernest Hemingway's legacy is... I don't know that ends on a dark note, but here we go. Ernest Hemingway's legacy is something that I know or care very little about, but I do know that he's one of those big American writers and also a journalist, which by law means I'm not allowed to like him. But investigating in investigating his character, I had a hard time finding anything to care about about him at all. Like, it was just like he wrote some shit and some other people said it was great and everyone went along with it. So we just accept his celebrity status as a great writer. I've only ever read a couple of his books, full transparency, but I never saw anything in them that, like, struck me as earth-shatteringly significant. At least not in the way that the public school system acts like they are. Well, I mean, the public school system, someone at some point who's never read a book decides that book is important, and then for the next 20 years, legions of innocent children are forced to read it. Yeah. And, like, that's the thing. It's so much easier to enact something than to demolish it. So once somebody decides this is a book people have to read in school, that's a lot easier to do than to decide, you know what? Maybe they don't need to read this. That's yeah. why, and you know, I'm, I'm not a libertarian, but I'm going to sound a little bit fucking libertarian right now. That's why you, you need to be so fucking careful about enacting laws, because it's a lot easier to make a new law than to get rid of one. That is true. That is true. And now that we've delved into politics, and George is at the bottom of his wine bottle, um... Did you have anything you wanted to say about Hemingway before we head to the surface? I mean, I don't think so. I mean, this is... I definitely learned some stuff today. I mean, I knew I didn't like him. I still don't like him. I just don't understand him, for one thing. Like, it seems like he really... So many times, like, he had it made. Like, he could have just... Just wrote it out, you know? He could have just taken taken what he had and been like, This is fine. And lived very happily and successfully with it. But he just kept fucking it up. I yeah. don't, I don't, I don't really get that. Then again, I, I'm the type of person who like can entertain himself for two hours with a burrito wrapper. So maybe, maybe <laughs> I'm just, I just don't have the aspiration that someone like Hemingway has. I mean, I, I sort of, I guess I sort of get it. There are people out there who just don't know when the going is good and good enough. You know, it's always this, this like pie in the sky dream of like. Oh, you know, can I, well, you know, maybe I can get a little more money, you know, even though you already got plenty and all that stuff. It's just, I don't, I don't understand that, um, that way of thinking, but that's, that's kind of how, uh, uh, Hemingway comes off to me is just like, he doesn't, like he had it with Hadley, you know, it, it was a good, it was a good life. And then he just had to go screw it up because he couldn't help himself. No self-control at all. I think that's the bottom line. Yeah. No, he definitely. just did what, did what he wanted to do. Um... Anyway, I think with all that, it's probably time to head to the surface, don't you think? I suppose so, though I don't know, that clock is looking a little thin. Oh yeah, well, we can fill some time. <laughs> Entertain me, peasant. Well, you're the drunk one, I feel like you probably have more entertaining things to say than me. I, I represent that. <laughs> Uh, well, let's go to the surface, and if something comes up, we'll, we'll get to it. I'll give you we a just pass a... this time. What's that? I said I'll give you a pass this time. All right. <laughs> okay, marking for surface. 12, 27. It is a little thin, but I think that's okay. I kind of blew through it. Usually I have more to say, but I just want to get through the story. 
Okay. So, George. Now that we've reached episode 100, and you are thoroughly blitzed, or at least a little bit, uh, what are your thoughts on the continuation of our, of our, of our little podcast here? Or, or do you think we're in a good spot? I mean, I think we're in a good spot. I'm still riding the high of Irish nationalism. I wore my Provost badge again today and had somebody ask about it. And so, like, two hours later... Okay, not two hours. Like, ten minutes later, they were thoroughly acquainted with a really compressed version of the history of Ireland. (laughs) (laughs) Educate the masses, man. That's that's what I'm trying to do. No, I think think we're in a good spot. I mean, I think we're releasing quality, you know, quality content. I enjoy listening to it. Um, I can't speak for the rest of y'all, but I enjoy it. But then again, <laughs> you know, what do I know? Um, oh, hey, you know, you've just reminded me of something. And you can go ahead and say more shit if you want while I pull this up. But I, there's something I've been wanting to do for a while. Oh, God. I've I done sh- it before. I but to think. Yeah. It's something I've been wanting to do for a while. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. I just want to say... Uh, I want to shout out our top cities this week. I'm that? sorry, Aaron. I can't marry you. <laughs> so uh, the top city this week was College Park. I don't know where that is. Um, there is a place in Indiana called College Park. I'm guessing it's not that one. Second was Bloomington. Third was Baltimore. Fourth was Portland. And fifth was St. Louis. And the first non-United States... Uh, um, City on here is Creef in the United Kingdom. Creef. Oh, MI6 is after my ass. I was going to say, they're, they're listening, dude. So, College Park, there's one in South Australia, Toronto, Saskatoon. Ooh, there's one in Dublin. Mm, oh. Maybe that's Well, it. This, one's, this one's definitely in the United States. Oh, fuck that. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and then, of Charleston, course, our top... Yeah? Charleston, South Carolina, D.C., Georgia... Florida, Virginia. Well, yeah, yeah. It's one of them. Our top listeners this week are, and this this is on SoundCloud alone, so it doesn't count the people on uh, iTunes because I just I can't get those metrics. Is Dylan Larue? Uh, Dylan is a longtime listener and uh, a trusted ally. And then we got two plays from Caitlin, and then two more plays from. Arabinian. I don't know who that is. Wait, you can see um, the names of people who listen? Yeah, some of them. Fuck, you can see that I listen to this podcast? No, not unless you li- listen through SoundCloud and have an account. Okay, I do listen through SoundCloud, but I don't have an account. Good, I don't want you knowing I listen to this fucking podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, he sees you when you're sleeping. Oh, and I, I want to. I hasten to add that we're on track to outpace uh, 2018 fairly soon in plays. Oh, that's exciting. I know. So, um, I think that's probably enough about enough of us just kind of whacking ourselves off over this. I, I do want to say that it's okay. been great recently. Our, our numbers are, if not steady, they're increasing. And that's because of you guys telling your friends about it, um, and sharing on social media and all that other stuff, stuff we're bad at. So we leave it up to you. If you, uh, if you like the show, um, make sure you share it. It's literally the most important thing you can do. Uh, and, yeah, that's about all I have to say. And that's that's about it for Business Matters. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, this this meeting is now adjourned. This meeting. We will read the minutes next time around. <laughs> if you um, know any Irish nationalists, send them a link to the Ireland series. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
so, George, now that you're sufficiently in the the fun zone, what are you going to do for the rest of the day? I haven't had fun since I was nine years old. Um, I'm going to do a bunch of grading that I'm behind on. And probably make some lesson plans. Well, that sounds like something that I wouldn't trust my drunk self to do, but... You know, it's better than my drunk self actually showing up to teach, so... That's true. (laughs) All right, kids, we are gonna fucking learn today. (laughs) (laughs) You just walk in, slam the bag on the podium. What's up, campers? I hope you're ready to do some (laughs) push-ups. I should, I should. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go play Death Stranding. Ooh, that's exciting. Yeah. Which, for my uh, my initial review, is 10 out of 10. Everybody's lying about it. Wait, so what? Do you, uh, what's your, I don't even know what, what genre of game is this. It's a science fiction adventure sim, is I it, guess. Is it, is it, like, first person? Like, what's the... It's what's third person. Third person. Uh, it's third person. You oh, play I, should, this... I should play The Witcher. Dude, you should play The Witcher. You should. What you should do for sure, if you can't think of anything else to do, is like go watch a long play of at least the first hour or half hour to an hour of uh, Death Stranding because it's probably some of the best high concept sci-fi I've seen in my life. Hmm. It's really good. I might have to do um, that. Yeah, for real though. Like, and if you do, let me know what you think because it, it blew my mind again and again. So. Anyway, I think it's probably time to bring the show to an end for today. If you hate us, you're probably right. So consider funding the show by becoming a patron on patreon.com, or if Patreon is not your thing, drop us a little tip in Venmo. People have been doing that a lot lately, and it's been awesome. Shocky our love. And our handle is at WTADP. That's WTADP. And remember to like, rate, subscribe, and share on social media. Can't literally cannot stress or emphasize that enough. Our cover art was created by the Ian Patterson of the Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson <laughs> Illustration. You can view more of his wonderfully whimsical work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. And with all that being said, we'll close out and let the sounds of journalism play you out. Hi, I'm Fox San Antonio's Jessica Headley. And I'm Ryan Wolf. Our, our greatest, greatest responsibility, responsibility is, is to, to serve, serve our, our Treasure Valley communities. The El Paso Las Cruces communities. Eastern Iowa communities. Mid-Michigan communities. We are extremely proud of the quality, balanced journalism that CBS4 News produces. But we, we are concerned about trouble and trying to be responsible. One-sided news stories plaguing our country. Plaguing our country. The sharing of biased and false news has become all too common on social media. More alarming, some media outlets publish the same fake stories without checking facts first. The sharing of biased and false, false news has, has become, become all too common, common on, on social, social media. media. More alarming, some media Unfortunately, some members of the media use their platforms to push their own personal bias and agenda to control exactly what people think, and this is extremely dangerous to our democracy. democracy.